Welcome to No Ordinary Ordinary Women, Women. the podcast where two ordinary broads chat about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and and the batshit crazy. How are you today, Rose? Doing well. I'm feeling a little low energy. How about you? you? I'm feeling a little... Stress? Insane stress. <laughs> like I feel like my hair is on fire and I can't find a towel to put it out. Um, yeah, it's been a crazy, crazy couple days. So just a little um, word of advice for our listeners because we love you guys. If you're going to send something FedEx, don't. Just fucking don't send anything FedEx. <laughs> and if you do have to send something FedEx, put an air tag in that motherfucker and track it yourself because they don't know where their goddamn packages are. Yeah, FedEx is the worst. I am, yeah, so I mailed my passport documents because my daughter um, surprised me and is taking me on a trip to Austria uh, in a couple weeks. And so, of course, my passport's expired, so I had to go through all these hoops to get my passport, um, a rapid, you know, a, a quick turnaround. So I mailed all the documents to a place up in the D.C. area in Alexandria, and I mailed it on Monday night. And it was supposed to be there by Tuesday at 1030, and it's still not there. And so when I inquired about going to— And it's now Wednesday evening. It's Wednesday evening. And I inquired about just going there and picking it up myself and hand-delivering it to— picking it it up in Alexandria and hand-delivering it in Alexandria because they couldn't seem to get it delivered. (laughs) And I was going to drive two and a half hours each way. And um, so they were going to call me and let me know once they located it and they had it in their hand— and they can't find it. They have no idea where it is. So they blew smoke up my ass for the first two days pretending like they knew where it was. And now they have no idea where it is. So everybody say a group little prayer, send positive vibes or Reiki, whatever you do, uh, that my passport and all the documents included are located tonight and delivered tomorrow morning. They really had to be there by 3 o'clock today. So honestly, if they do get delivered tomorrow morning, I don't know if it's too late. Oh, my God. So, yeah. It's so stressful. Yeah. I'm a little little bit annoyed with FedEx. Um, so, minimally, I will be getting my $36 back that I paid to have the thing overnighted. <laughs> um, and now, at this point, if I have to pay more money to have a, a greater expedite, if you will, on my passport, they're paying it. I'm, I'm convinced they're paying it. So... Well, see, so it's been a stressful day. I jumped in my car at 12 o'clock and started racing up to D.C., and I got halfway there when they told me they just didn't know where it was. So it, it made no sense for me to go there. So what happened? Because I text you, you said you were turning around, and then I looked like half an hour later, and you were going back towards D.C., and I asked you, like, what's going on? You're going back. And you said, yeah, I'm going to D.C., and then you turned around again. No, I never. No? I only turned around once. Okay. So Maybe I, you never turned around the the first, maybe when you said you were turning around, maybe you didn't. Oh, I don't know. So I, I was waiting for them to call me, and they, oh, and they okay. weren't calling me, weren't calling me. Finally, someone called me and said, we just don't know where it is. And that's when I had gotten to, like, 17 on 29 that oh, she's okay. there. Yeah. And I was like, well, there's no sense in me going if they don't know where it is. Like, what am I going to do? Right. So I turned around and came home at that point. That's but crazy. But, I, I mean, I was an hour and a half away at that point. Oh, that's... Oh. I was quite annoyed. Um, <laughs> you think so? They don't know. They it was scanned in Dulles. Then it was then it supposedly it was scanned in Alexandria, but neither one of them have it. So, yeah. I mean, how, 
how do they know they don't have it? They look through every package. Well, yeah. Like, did it fall off the conveyor belt? Is it stuck, you know, attached to another envelope? Is it like what? I don't know. I don't know. They just can't find it. They have no idea where it is. It's it's insane. You know, you you expect that somebody that's a shipper would not lose the thing you shipped. Well, and you think like every time something comes FedEx, it's like, okay, it's coming from California and and it hits like Montana and then you never get another update. Right. And then suddenly, like five days later, it's at your door. <laughs> well, that's with regular FedEx. But if it's express and overnight, yeah. it gets it gets scanned every time it moves. Well, that's how it's supposed to be on any package, but it doesn't. Yeah, I don't think they do it as much. But on the express packages, from the time it moves, like into the warehouse, the distri- distribution center gets scanned. Then when it gets on the truck, it gets scanned. And then right. it's out for delivery or whatever. But they're not. It's the, the website's not updating. Everybody at FedEx says it's at Alexandria. Everyone at Alexandria said it's in Dulles. The people in Dulles can't find it. They've looked in Alexandria. I just feel like, let me look for it because I don't trust you guys are looking hard Yeah, enough. right. I mean, like, they are put, you really looking or are you just being like, oh, yeah, we looked. We can't find it. They put, like, somebody who's making, like, $10 an hour. Right. Oh, go look for it. And, and the problem like, is, is it. it's all my personal information. It's, like, right. everything. Like, all that information you put on a passport. I wonder if it got stolen. I'm really nervous. I mean, how would they know it was in it, though? Well, maybe, I mean, anything that's being FedExed overnight probably has important documents in it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm really nervous because it's, it's, you know, it's like everything about me is filled out on that application. Oh, my God. I'm like, or they might, like, there might be some kind of, like, ring and they steal passports. Great, 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 Rose. (laughs) How about trying to make me feel better, you bitch? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I was thinking of today. I'm like, I wonder if there's some kind of like ring and they know like what, you know, the passports look like when they come through or how do they feel or something. And I don't know. I mean, it feels like a passport and a piece of paper. That's right. exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I'm a little stressed. So if my story completely sucks this week, please forgive me. I tried really hard to get it done. And we're recording a day early, which didn't help me either. But it yeah, that it was my fault. Sorry, Lynn. It's okay. Her stupid son has his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's all right. I might as well get it over with. Gosh. Well, if I would have known that he had soccer practice, I would have made sure to tell you last week. Yeah, it's okay. But, you know. Isn't this the third Wednesday in a row we've done, isn't it? Isn't it, it is, the third? yeah. yeah. Um, it's that I, back to school time that it's like the crazy, end of summer yeah. time where it's get, things get crazy. And my shoulder hurts. I worked out, and so my shoulders are sore from that. And then, yeah, I'm falling apart. So you guys ready to hear about— Oh, wait. Talk about our drink that you made. It's so good. Oh, yes. 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 It's amazing. So it is the Jose Cuervo 1800 Silver uh, Watermelon. It's a pre-made margarita. Comes Everything's in there. And I added some jalapenos, a splash of lime juice— and then I served it over ice with a rim of tahine and... She gave it a rim job. I gave it a rim job of tahine and And you put a little salt. seltzer in it, didn't you? Oh, and then I put a splash of seltzer in it because it's kind of like sweet and like a little bit thick. So I added a little bit of seltzer. <laughs> I thought you liked it thick. I like it thick. So I added a little bit of seltzer to kind of like... It's it really, out. really good. It's super yummy. My lips are on fire. This lip is on fire. Mine too. Is it? <laughs> All right. Who are you going to tell us about? I think I think this is going to be a good one. Uh, I'm very she's excited. She's pretty cool. She's pretty cool. And I wish I had more information. The book I was reading, again, I'm the slowest reader in the world. Even though I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm still slow. Um, <laughs> I haven't finished it, but I went through and like skipped through a lot of it. But 
I'm going to tell everyone today about Julia Child. <laughs> so a little tidbit of information. Mary, lo- my sister, loves Julia Child, and she named her daughter after her. Her name's Julia. Oh, is she? Yeah. I, I think I did know that. Actually. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, Julia Child is – she's pretty funny, and she's pretty cool. So um, Julia – oh, my gosh. I was trying to move the thing with my fingers, but I'm on my laptop. Julia Child's legacy in the culinary world is nothing short of revolutionary. Her unapologetic wit shared by her, I'm sorry, shaped her persona by making her a relatable, approachable, and an empowering figure in the culinary world. With her ability to combine her boundless passion for French cuisine, she transformed the way Americans approached cooking and eating. Her infectious laughter moved cooking from a chore to a delightful art for that anyone can embrace and enjoy. She was born Julia Caroline McWilliams on August 15, 1912, in Pasadena, California. She was the eldest of three children, born to John McWilliams, Jr., a Princeton University graduate and a successful land developer, and Julia Carolyn Weston, a paper company heiress. Geez, 1912. I didn't know she was that old. Her parents had lived, she lived pretty comfortably. And her mom lived, named her after her? Mm-hmm. She was a junior? She's a junior. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Her family was well off, allowing to have her to have comfortable upbringing and not require her to venture into the kitchen to learn any skills. While she was growing up, she played tennis, golf, and basketball. That's so funny. I totally thought she would would have had like a poor upbringing. I know the way she yeah, because like she figured this out. Yeah. No, it's like she didn't. She had a very. I mean, her dad was a land developer. Yeah, and her mom was an heiress, so they had. Jeez. Yeah. Um, her height. Coupled with her adventurous spirit, helped shape her unique personality. She stood out from her peers, and her exuberance set the stage for her later humor and fearless approach to life. How tall was she? Six foot two. Holy shit. She attended the elite Westridge School for Girls in Pasadena. Um, so when she was in high school, she was just like a silly girl. She like would get in trouble. She was like class clown and like yeah. goofy and silly. And she was, like, really into boys. and But she was so oh my tall. God, she was Lynn. Yeah, she was totally <laughs> me. Um, but she was very tall. And so she, you know, she definitely, that stood out. Later, she enrolled in Smith College in Massachusetts, where she majored in history and joined various clubs and activities, including the basketball team. Oh. So at her. six feet two, she was hoping she'd stand out on the court while playing for their basketball team. Yeah. But since she was so much taller than her teammates, her school decided to change a rule in their game. Oh, no. No more jump ball. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only she said. (laughs) She said um, in her autobiography. Wait, jump ball is when you're in the middle and you jump for it? At the very beginning. Okay, yeah. But they used to do jump balls all the time. If there was like um, like a... like two people would fight over the ball, it was a jump ball. And then, okay, yeah. And they stopped doing those. But... um, in her biography, Appetite for Life, she admitted that she was not very good at the rest of the game. She was only good at the job. <laughs> and they took it away? Yeah, they took it away. <laughs> assholes. She graduated from Smith College with a degree in history and has 10 honorary doctorates. Holy shit. Her first honorary doctorate came from Boston University in 1976. She received an honorary, do- honorary doctor of humane letters degree. She also has an honorary doctorate's from Bates College, Rutgers University, Smith College, Brown University, and Harvard University. Oh, my God. I barely have a degree at all. (laughs) 
Well, that's not real. So, <laughs> despite despite her academic pursuits, she was known for her social spirit and love for outdoor activities like tennis and hiking. Um, she was rejected for so after she graduated from college, she decided she wanted to go into the military. That's she's like that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So she was rejected for um, she was rejected for active duty by the Navy because. Um, just too tall. Because she was too tall. <laughs> Are you serious? Real, yeah, she was too tall. What? What does that have to do with anything? Probably because they wouldn't have a uniform for her or something. I don't know. She they wouldn't would fit see in her airplanes. Coming. I don't know. Yeah, she, she wouldn't coming. fit in the airplanes. <laughs> so what's the point of an on- honorary degree? Uh, it's just probably so that people donate money to the college. I don't know. Like, I don't it understand. seems so stupid I mean, to me. It's, like, I mean, y- you have that degree. It's a, it's a degree. But it's not like... You're going to be like, oh, you know, they gave an when I was at, I'm a doctor now, when I was at Abby's graduation at CNU, they gave an honorary degree degree to the guy that, that owns the construction company that built all the the buildings at CNU. And I was like, you mean after you paid him billions of dollars yeah. to build all these things, you're going to give right. him an honorary degree? How about if you take that honorary degree and give it to some kid who struggled? Fucked hard. That's so weird to me. Like, the whole thing is weird to me. It's, it's so weird. So... Her first job out of college, she was an advertising manager at a furniture store. She applied for, and she was fired from that. So she applied for a position with the Office of of Strategic Services, the OSS. And that was the predecessor of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, girl. Oh, wow. Not the Culinary Institute of America. <laughs> so anyway, she was probably also a part of, right? Exactly. She moved to Cali- from California to Washington D.C. at the start of World War II to join the Federal Office of Strategic Services. Um, first, she was hired to do typing and research. However, she quickly rose to the ranks and was promoted to work under the OSS director William Donovan. Later, while working for the emergency sea rescue equipment section, she helped develop a shark repellent. I was like, a shark repellent? Shark? Yeah. I guess maybe for divers and stuff? I don't know. I don't think they use it I didn't anymore. look into it. I didn't have time because you rushed me. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know, Lynn. Can you, yeah, can you pause and, and do some yeah, research do some research. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that every other paragraph in the story. <laughs> Just kidding. This story would be better, but, but Rose yeah. rushed me. During her last two years, she served as chief of the OSS registry in Ceylon, uh, which is now Sri Lanka, and Kunming, China, where she handled top secret papers about the invasion of the Malay Peninsula. Oh, my God. They trusted a woman to do that? I know. She's like, women are crazy. How would they trust a woman to do that? What the hell? I don't know. What if she had her period and got crazy and, like, burned the paper? Uh, fun fact about her. She called it the curse when she had her period. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I agree. called it the curse. The week before, she was very. <laughs> she was very frank and very, like, outspoken, and she said what had to be said. And her favorite word or phrase was balls. <laughs> Just like you, Lynn. Just like me. I know. I love her. <laughs> So growing up, most of her meals came from the family's cook or from her family's freezer or out of a can. <laughs> while cooking, while working in China, she found that American food was terrible and the Chinese food was wonderful and tried to eat the local cuisine as often as possible. Oh, wow. um, she said that's when she started becoming interested in food. Um, her adventurous spirit and ability to think on her feet would serve her well in the culinary pursuits later. 
It wasn't until she met her husband, Paul Crushing Child, and Cushing. I'm sorry, not crushing. I was like, that's that's my brain. Crushing right child. Crushing, crushing that's, child. That's yeah. a little concerning. <laughs> Paul Cushing, child, an artist and fellow OSS employee in Salon, um, that she began finding her passion for cooking. She first met Paul when he was at Harvard, and he left Harvard and went on to become a corporate lawyer. But then I guess joined the OSS. Oh, that's funny. So they knew each other beforehand. Yeah, they met earlier. In 1946, when she was 34, she and Paul married. So she was pretty old when she got married for that time. That's super Um, old. And Paul's diplomatic postings took them to various countries, including France. It was during their time in Paris. She was 36 years old, and she fell in love with French cooking, and her love for cook her and her cooking started to blossom. Oh, so she was just like, geez, I didn't know she was that old. Yeah, so she was. So when they moved to France, like she didn't really have anything to do, so she was like trying to, you know, like learn how to cook. Yeah, she really, um, just wanted to learn how to cook to impress her husband. Yeah, because he was like. You know, this foodie. Um, so he's credited for introducing her to French cuisine because he was like an artist. He was a poet and a foodie. So he was like really – and he was a, it was a wine connoisseur as well. Of course they credited him. They probably gave him all the credit for everything oh, she I'm did. Oh, sure right? did. <laughs> <laughs> because he was a worldly man. That's why she wanted to learn <laughs> to cook for him. So after the war and back in the States, Julia enrolled in Hillcliff School of Cookery in Beverly Hills. So that was later on. So he took her to the oldest restaurant in France, La Cocoron Restaurant. The it's so funny. I try and say stuff, and my like my Italian accent. I know. Comes out, I was going to say. So I've heard you like say that word in for like an Italian. Cocoron. <laughs> it's not cocoron. It's cocoron, cocoron, or something like that. Anyway. The experience sparked her lifelong love affair with French food, thus kickstarting her love for cooking French food. She eventually enrolled in the famed Le Cordon Bleu in France. (laughs) So um, this is just kind of some interesting information. So her kitchen in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, the home that her and her husband designed, or actually her husband designed the home for her, uh, designed the kitchen for her, was the backdrop of three of her TV shows. She cooked in her kitchen on the shows in Julia's Kitchen with Master Chefs, Baking with Julia, and Julia and Jacques cooking at home. How did so how did she are you going into how she got TV shows? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To turn the kitchen to a set, producers removed the table chairs and back wall cabinets where they stationed the cameras. Her humor made her instantly relatable to her audience. She didn't take herself too seriously and wasn't afraid to poke fun at her own mistakes and mishaps in the kitchen. This down-to-earth attitude endeared her to the viewers and readers, making them feel that her cooking, even complex French cuisine, was within their reach. So the National Museum of American History says they added curtains to the windows, mounted light poles on the ceiling, and installed large cooking island in a large cooking island in the center. On television, Julia and her guests c- cooks n- used her kitchenware, so they used her actual. Oh wow! Yeah, she didn't have anything special. That's crazy that they used her kitchen. Yeah, they totally used her kitchen. So in 2001, she donated her actual kitchen to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in D.C. Wow. 
The kitchen she gave was from her Cambridge, Massachusetts home and was the backdrop of her last three cooking shows. So I've seen that. I've gone. And it's like there. Oh, really? It's like right in the middle of the museum. It's Not so in the middle, weird. but it's there. Yeah. And it's like plexiglass around. And you can see how like she had everything on a pegboard, all of her stuff like on a pegboard on yeah. the wall. And then she had an outline. I don't know if her husband did it or she did it, where everything went. So she knew exactly where to put it back. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So she like outlined, like her measuring spoons were outlined. Yeah. So she knew what, what peg they went on to everything to fit per- perfectly on the wall. Um, in, 19, in 1948, she enrolled in at Le Cordon Bleu cooking school in Paris, where she honed in her culinary schools and skill schools skills <laughs> and developed a deep appreciation for French cooking te- techniques and traditions. I'm struggling today. This was the <laughs> beginning of her culinary journey and laid the foundation for I her later. I thought you were going to pop- yell at your mic for I, a second. I almost did. <laughs> The way you looked at it. I'm like, God damn it. (laughs) So this was the beginning of her culinary journey and laid the foundation for her later contributions to the culinary world. While living in Paris, she joined the Women's Cooking Club, Les Cirques des Gourmets. I hope we don't have any French. I'm so (laughs) sorry, you guys, if I'm mutilating this. That was where she met Simone Beck and uh, Simone's friend, uh, Louisette Berthol. Are those her BFFs? They are her BFFs. And they developed close friendship. She friendship. She developed friendships. close <laughs> friendships with both of them. I swear to God, I need to just go back to bed. The three would go on to start their own cooking school out of Julia's kitchen apartment in France. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Their school was called, oh, God, I didn't look this one up. Um, L'Ecole des Tro- Trios... Gourmades. Oh, that's Italian. Sorry. Gourmades? I don't know. Anyway, which translates... really hard. <laughs> I know. Which translates to the school of the three food lovers, which I think is cute. Oh, that is cute. They also collaborated in a cookbook that would eventually become Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Alfred Knopp gave very little money to Child, Beck, and Berthol to publicize their book. She took matters into her own hands, Julia did, by going on several talk shows to promote the cookbook. One of the programs she appeared on was I've Been Reading. That's the name of the show I've been reading. A show about books that were produced by Boston's PBS PBS station. She showed up to the interview with her equipment and taught everyone how to make an omelet using a hot plate. This was her first TV cooking show appearance. She like got there. She's like, oh, no, I'm just going to show you. Like, it just made an omelet. <laughs> and, like, that was her first thing she ever cooked on, oh, on wow. TV was an omelet. Um, 27 viewers wrote to the station singing her praises, thus convincing the PBS station to give her her own cooking show. Oh, that's awesome. Isn't that cool? By the end of 1965, her show, The French Chef, was carried by 96 PBS stations. Holy shit. That's crazy. And how old was she at this point? Um... She's God like in her fifties. Yeah, because well, you said it was sixty something. So she's thirty nine, thirty six when she got married. Well, she was born in twelve. Thirty four when she got married in nineteen forty six. She was thirty four. Nineteen forty six. Forty six, fifty six, six. So that was like um, nineteen years later. 
It's like 54, 55. Just said. Um, the French chef ran from February 11th, 1963 to 1973, 10 full years. Holy shit. And it was one of America's first cooking shows. Isn't that funny? She had the first cooking show. I mean, how many cooking shows are there now? I, I know. If she could only see. Right. Julia emphasized the importance of using fresh, high-quality ingredients in cooking. Her emphasis on the integrity of the ingredients and the flavors set the stage for the modern farm-to-table movement and the appreciation of local, sustainable produce. Again, all this stuff. Like, and it's finally made its way I know. now. <laughs> yeah. Like, Re- how many years later? Yeah. Digital film wasn't around during the era of the French chef. That meant that most of her episodes were unedited and filmed in one shot, giving the audience a full view of her charming personality. It also meant meant that a lot of her errors were shown on TV. This allowed her to show how to fix common cooking mistakes and relate more closely with her viewers. They would never do that now. Oh, my God. No, no way. In 1966, she won an Emmy for Achievements in Education television, making her the first educational TV personality to win an Emmy. She will forever be known for introducing French cuisine to the American into American homes. While filming another cooking show, The Baking with Julia series, she used 753 pounds of butter. Butter. <laughs> oh, my God. According to Julia... With enough butter, anything is good, I have to say. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) That show aired for four seasons. I mean, it is true. You can put butter on pretty much anything, and it makes it taste better. The French Chef was also the first TV program to have closed captioning for deaf and hard-of-hearing viewers. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? So closed captioning wasn't even a thing before her show. It's so funny because you think, like, she always had that heavy—she has an accent, right? A little bit, but she talks more like very proper, which is so funny because she's from the United States. Yeah, but she lived in France for a long time. So, but I think it's more of just a proper. I think she just speaks very proper. She definitely has like an accent going on. You take the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> According to the National Captioning Institute, in 1970, ABC teamed up with National Bureau of Standards to create closed captioning which helped push the funding to make it an accessible feature for all channels. Oh, thank that? God. That helps me every day of my life. I watch I we watch everything with captions. You and Penelope? Yeah, we do. Me and Penelope. <laughs> she reads them out loud to me. <laughs> so it's like keeps me from missing stuff because you constantly miss stuff. I can't hear to save my life. I told you about that movie me and Christina watched. It was like an English movie, like one of the Jane Eyre movies. Mm-hmm. And halfway through, I'm like, are they speaking English? <laughs> Because I could not understand a fucking word they were saying. Oh, my God. The whole movie. I was like, are they speaking another language? I don't know what the hell is going on. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's so great. So you had no idea what was going on. No. That's so funny. So in 1981, alongside Robert Mandavi and Richard Graff, she founded the American Institute of Wine and Food. Oh, the American Institute of Wine and Food is a nonprofit that helps professionals and also food and wine enthusiasts and is about advancing and appreciating food and wine in all of its glory. Are you part of that club? No. No. I'm a part of the drink as much as you can until you pass out so you sleep. 
That's the box wine club. That's the box wine club. Oh, God, gross. She had 13 TV programs and 16 cookbooks. Most of her television shows had cookbook companions. This way readers could follow along with the recipe while watching her on the cooking oh. show. Isn't that a great idea? Her unapologetic unapologetic attitude towards culinary blunders encouraged her individuals to fiercely experiment and learn from their mishaps in the kitchen. By emphasizing the joy of cooking and the transformative power of practice, she conveyed that making mistakes was an essential part of the learning process, ultimately empowering and aspiring chefs to gain confidence, refine their skills, and discover the artistry in every dish. She once famously remarked, the only real stumbling block is fear of failure in cooking. You've got to have a what-the-hell attitude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's very true. Right. That's and this, why I can't cook because I'm like— You just got to do it and keep pushing forward. And this was a great example of a Julia-ism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she had a bunch of Julia-ism. Um, this perspective reflected her belief that mistakes were opportunities for culinary exploration— Another example is when she humorously noted, remember you're alone in the kitchen and no one can see you to make a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, but they have to eat your food. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. She said if you drop it, nobody will know. Just pick it back up. (laughs) I do do that. (laughs) She lightheartedly encouragement. She this lighthearted encouragement highlighted her philosophy of experimentation, experimentation and learning from mishaps without the fear of judgment. One time, she said, while stuck sticking her fingers in a pot, to test hot tortelloni. This thing is as hot as a stiff cock. (laughs) (laughs) These quips not only showcased her delight sense of humor, but also conveyed her belief in the transformative potential of mistakes, leading to initiative and delightful culinary discoveries. In the 1960s, uh, Julia was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, she, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know it either. I'd forgotten about it if I did know. She chose to have a single mastectomy, which meant she had all of her cancerous breasts removed. She didn't keep her mastectomy a secret, but it wasn't well known. In 1990, she agreed to donate her Cambridge home and office to her alma mater, Smith College, when she passed away. Oh. But because she moved back to California in 2001, she decided to accelerate her gift and give her home and office to Smith College early. Oh, that's nice. The college soon sold her home and office for $2.35 million. Wow. And used her donation to build the first campus center at Smith College. It's kind of cool. So I wonder if it's called the Julia Child. As someone who works in fundraising, why didn't she just sell? (laughs) She didn't want to sell it and give them the money. I guess she left it up to them to decide what they wanted to do with it. Oh. If they wanted to... That's such a pain in the ass. Don't do that, people. Well, maybe she didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> so she was awarded the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award that recognizes a diverse group of Americans from athletes to celebrity chefs. On July 23, 2003, President George Bush presented Julia Child with the Presidential Medal of Freedom for teaching Americans how to cook and enriching the American culture. In his remarks, he joked that Julia already held the highest distinction of the French government because she had received the Legion of Honor for <laughs> <laughs> I know I said that wrong for promoting American appreciation and the techniques of French cooking. She credited her long life to red meat and gin. 
<laughs> oh my god. In a 2001 TV interview, she said, "I don't consider vegetarianism a sensible diet at all because you're supposed to have a little bit of everything. How about red meat, which I believe in, as I've often said, red meat and gin, like as she said before." Wow. That means I'm going to live forever. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not eating meat right now, so I'm going to die, I guess. So she uh, appreciated the magic of Costco. (laughs) Same. She she often treated herself to one of their classic food court items. It has been said that she would sit under the umbrellas at the Santa Barbara Costco location and enjoy a hot dog. That's so funny. I remember they used to have umbrellas. They don't have that anymore. Yeah. Oh, well, at ours they don't. Maybe at other Were ones. Were they inside? No, they would have umbrellas outside. I remember at the one in Hawaii they had a bunch of, like, almost like a food court outside. But maybe they only have it in nice places. Yeah, in California and Hawaii yeah. and stuff. Yeah, they don't. I've never had, think they've had them here. You always have oh, them really? inside. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Her cultural impact, impact extended beyond the kitchen. She became a cultural icon recognized for her distinctive voice, towering height, and vibrant personality. Her influence can can be seen in various aspects of popular culture, from parodies to references in movies and TV shows. So they did a they did a skit on Saturday Night Live about her, like making a chicken. They were like beating oh. up the chicken. It was really <laughs> funny. Before she passed away, she had a rose named after her, not you, Rose. I am named after her. She first was unwilling to have a flower named after her until she saw a butter-colored rose. After that, <laughs> a hybrid was made, and now the buttery-colored rose is called the Julia Child. They're perfect year-round roses and have a pleasant licorice scent. Sounds Ooh. and probably smells divine. Isn't that cool? That sounded good until you said licorice scent. I don't know, but I like a butter flavor. A butter flavor. <laughs> <laughs> now that would be good. <laughs> butter flavor rose. I'd be eating those. Oh, I was thinking like, oh, I, w- I want to get some of those. And then you said licorice scent. I'm like, oh. I think like a butter colored rose would be beautiful. Yeah, it, would, it would be beautiful. So Julia died two days before her 92nd birthday. Her last meal was homemade French onion soup prepared by her longtime assistant, which is fitting for the chef and her culinary personality who ushered French cuisine into the American homes. She reshaped home cooking and was a pioneer in television cooking. She had a lot of firsts under her belt, but most notably, she was the first woman woman inducted into the Culinary Institute of America's Hall of Fame. That was the CIA. In 1993, she would later also receive an honorary doctorate of fine arts from the school, from the Culinary Institute. Oh. So one more degree. I bet that one she actually liked. And its first Lifetime, lifetime Achievement Award. Julia wrote 18 books in her lifetime, most being cookbooks. Her last book published, My Life in France, was an autobiography about her time living in France. Imagine that. Learning how to cook and learning how to cook French cuisine. It featured handwritten notes from Julia and her husband, Paul. And she wrote this book with her husband's grandnephew, Alex Prude, Prude Prudhomme. I don't know how to say it. Was her husband dead? I don't know. It doesn't say. Julia, unfortunately, died before the book was published. So Prudhomme went on to finish the book and it was published two years posthumously which means after her death so it was super funny no <laughs> I'm just kidding the movie starring Meryl Streep as Julia was based on a writer Julie Powell's blog so it's right big, I yeah. remember that she t- yeah tell me sorry so where this this person 
this blog where she cooked through the entire entirety of mastering the art of French cooking in a year. So she took Julia Child's book and cooked through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And her blog was turned into a book, which was then turned into a major motion motion picture. Despite all the success, Julia wasn't Powell's biggest fan. Oh, really? Why? I don't know. Oh, my God, Lynn. You can't give me gossip like that and not tell me why. Rose. Rose. You know I love gossip. You rushed me. Oh. Do you not remember? (laughs) I'm sorry. Do you not remember this? I'm sorry. You would have been able to tell me. Of course, if I did it tomorrow, not today. Well, was it in her book? I don't know. I didn't finish reading the book. Jeez, some shoddy work. I know. Shoddy work on your part. What was her name? Oh, that's Julia and Julie. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. That's why it's called Julia, Julie and Julia or something. So, Rose, just since you asked, uh, Julia was reported to have been unimpressed with her blog, believing her determination to cook every recipe and mastering the arts of French cooking in a year to be a stunt. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, Julie's. Uh, I guess you know who she reminds me of Yana. Who Julia Child? Yeah, like yeah. She, Yana wouldn't do something like yeah, that. Right. She would be like, "You're just doing it for attention." Right. Exactly. So Judith Jones, um, Julia's editor, said in an interview, "Flinging around four-letter words when cooking isn't attractive to me or Julia." Oh, so. She's the one who said it. it felt like a stiff cock. Yeah, I, she. I don't understand <laughs> because Julia definitely flung around four-letter words. Food editor and columnist for the Los Angeles Times, Russ Parsons, show, showed Julia the blog. And when he asked her over the phone what she thought, well, she was brutally honest. Wow. So she wasn't impressed by her. Newsweek on July 15th, 1963 said she was turning Boston, the home of the bean and the cod, into the home of the brie and the cock. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Meaning chicken. <laughs> but, Everyone like that. Um, so she talked about how she would curse, swear, talk frankly about private matters that would make lawyers blush. Oh. She loved to gossip. Her favorite word was balls. And she got a perm every year and wore falsies, which I assume that was false teeth? eyelashes. Oh. I thought it was false teeth. Isn't that what they no. call the little girls? No. Oh, no, that's not false. No. Her voice was as recognized as Walter Cronkite. Wow. And that, my friends, is the story of Julia Child. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't nail that one. Try again. Julia Child. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if I just busted all your eardrums. <laughs> Oh, so, boy. That was really good. So I'm, I'm sorry it was Julia. a longer, you guys. She's pretty badass. But, you know, she's her book's really good. I'm reading her book right now. Um, the parts that Lynn listened to are good. The one I listened to, I really, I downloaded the book. I paid a lot of money for it. It was not cheap. Did you? Yeah, it was like $24. Holy shit. Balls. And I downloaded the book, and it said, I swear it said it was six hours. I was like, this is perfect. I'm going to listen to it on my way home from New York because I was in New York last weekend and it turned out to be like 26 hours. And I've been listening to it at like 1.5 speed, which is making me more anxious than I already. <laughs> I'm, like, oh, I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. That's but so funny. I'm listening to um, The Appetite for Life um, is the name of the book. It's like her biography. So it's a good book. That's awesome. I love her. Yes. I'm glad you did. I was very excited to hear that you were doing her. She, yeah, and I wish I could have delved, delved, delved in a little bit deeper, um, but 
it's been a long week, y'all, and it's only Wednesday. <laughs> I know. I keep thinking it's like Friday, but it's It only does. Wednesday. It feels like it should be Friday. I'm like, Lord, help me get through this week. So anyway. So I do want to mention that we had a fan reach out that we didn't know we had. And um, she wants to see Lynn naked. Uh, everybody wants to see me naked, Rose. <laughs> um, I won't say her name because should we? We could say her no. first. Her what's? Her, we could say her first name, right? Yeah. Can't we? I don't know. I don't know. Stand by. I'm gonna look her up. It's Bryn. Bryn. Yeah. I think we say her first name. Okay. Okay, so we had a fan named Bryn reach out to us, and it was very exciting for us to get an email. We were like, what? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, it was very exciting, and she gave us a suggestion on two women to do, and I am super stoked about it because the two women remind me a little bit of Georgie White based on the little bit of information she gave us. So I'll be doing those next time that I do a story, and... I'm stoked because it's having, you know, having somebody give you ideas is a great, is is fabulous because we've got so many other things on our plate to have somebody just hand you an idea. Yeah, I know. Which doesn't cost you guys anything, by the way, unless you want to send us money, then feel free. But (laughs) here's um, an idea and 20 bucks. Yeah. (laughs) But thank you so much, Bryn. It's so nice to hear. We have listeners and it's not just our family that we make listen. So we appreciate you. Yes, that was that was very nice. We were very excited. And so if you guys want to reach out to us, you can go to our website and you can email us from that. It's noordinarywomenpod.com um, if you want to go to our website. If you want to reach out to us on social media, you can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at noordinarywomenpod and on Twitter at noordwomenpod, O-R-D. So reach out to us, give us ideas, tell us you love us, and make sure you tell all your friends about us and you follow, like, rate, and review our podcast. That's the biggest help you can give us. So we can scoot up them charts, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. So until next week. We love you guys. Ta-ta. Bye.